Hello and welcome to this penultimate episode of our book club series. I almost feel like I have to apologise for including Pericles within this series, since technically the rubric that I chose was to read week by week all of the plays included in Shakespeare's first folio. If we were to read Shakespeare's complete works, we would get into the muddy territory of how to explore the sonnets or the longer poems, never mind the complications that hover around what have been called the collaborative works, plays in which Shakespeare's hand has been detected among the work of other playwrights and colleagues. As things stand, there are 36 plays in the first folio, and then we have two plays that don't make it into that special collection. These are the two noble kinsmen, and our play this week, Pericles. There are any number of reasons why this play didn't make it into the folio. Perhaps the printing rights could not be secured, or perhaps the compilers didn't feel it was enough by Shakespeare that it merited inclusion. We can't know with any certainty why it was excluded, but what we do know is that it was one of Shakespeare's most popular plays before the closure of the theatres by the Puritans. This play is weird from start to finish, but there's something very special about it. On the page, it can feel fantastical, nonsensical, and very rambly indeed, but as a theatrical experience, a shared odyssey, it can be very, very moving. The whole story is narrated by the figure of the poet, John Gower, who emerges from the ashes to tell this tale, a song that old was sung. Gower was a medieval poet who wrote at about the same time as his friend Geoffrey Chaucer. Throughout the play, he introduces scenes and tells us what is going to happen in them. Indeed, they are prefaced also by dumb shows. The whole affair feels like a throwback to a more medieval pageantry, not a million miles from the way the players in Hamlet are likewise performing in a recognisable but clearly old-fashioned manner. Shakespeare lulls us into a pattern with this so that we begin to expect it, only to pull off quite a neat trick at the end of the play. I say Shakespeare does this, but I should acknowledge that the authorship of this play has been a point of debate. The exclusion from the folio is one reason why people don't think Shakespeare wrote it or wrote all of it. But then, some people think that Shakespeare didn't write any of his plays at all. Certainly, the language of the play improves as it goes along, and there's a feeling that another hand was largely responsible for the first two acts, and then Shakespeare, as it were, takes the wheel for the remainder of the play. So yes, it's Shakespeare that engineers a surprise in our expectations at the end. Before we get there, we have a rather enormous journey to get through. Pericles, our hero, Prince of Tyre, starts the play in Antioch, where he is hoping to win the heart of a princess. The story here is quite similar to that of the Puccini opera Turandot, wherein a princely suitor vies for the hand of a mysterious princess by attempting to solve a riddle. In both stories, if he gets the riddle wrong, he will have his head cut off. In Pericles, there's the added horror that our prince realises that the king of Antioch, conveniently called Antiochus, is actually sleeping with his daughter, the princess. The answer to the riddle, which is very easy, is incest. And so our hero is left with the choice of exposing this lurid secret or having his head cut off. It's a gloriously wicked exercise of power to make your subjects and supporters refuse to see the truth and defend your odious behaviour by pretending it's not happening. Not that this would ever happen in a civilised society, of course. 
Pericles, faced with this awful choice, does the logical thing and runs away. Trouble is, Antiochus knows who he is. Surely someone, this wicked, will likely send an assassin to kill him at home in Tyre. With this concern in mind, Pericles leaves the noble Helicanus in charge and sets sail again. He makes his way to Tarsus and brings food and salvation to its people who are beset with famine. The governor Cleon and his formidable wife Dionysa are enormously grateful and Pericles sets sail again. The first of the play's storms shipwrecks Pericles' ship and he's washed up on the shore of Pentapolis in North Africa. He meets a group of very funny fishermen and then, as if by magic, his armour, given him by his father, is recovered in their nets. As they chat, Pericles hears that there's a festival in Pentapolis right now celebrating the birthday of another princess. He decides that he will join the party. In the court of King Simonides, there's a tournament in this ancient Greek city. But don't ask too many questions. Blame Gower, the medieval poet, for staging so medieval an entertainment. The various knights present their arms, and Pericles does his best despite his humble shipwrecked state. He impresses the birthday girl, Taisa, and soon enough her father the king is arranging their marriage. All is going beautifully, until word comes from Tyre that it might be best if Pericles came home. They decide to leave Pentapolis, despite Taisa being heavily pregnant. Another storm breaks out, and in the wildness of the waves, Taisa goes into labour and dies in childbirth. In a remarkably bleak scene, the sailors insist that the storm will never let up unless they toss the body overboard. So, this new mother is carefully laid in a casket and thrown overboard, and the heartbroken Pericles rails against his fate. The storm breaks, and the casket washes up on shore in Ephesus. Here, a local doctor called Cerimon happens upon it, opens it, and figures that he can use his art to revive her. And sure enough, Taisa recovers. She is so overwhelmed with grief at the assumption that Pericles and her baby died in the storm that she joins the famous temple of Diana there at Ephesus. Surprise, surprise, Pericles survived, and he makes a stop at nearby Tarsus, far closer than Tyre, and begs Cleon and Dionysa to mind his baby, a girl that he calls Marina since she was born at sea. They still owe him for having rescued the city from famine, so they agree to take her in, and Pericles swears he will not cut his hair or his beard until he comes to collect her. It might seem that nobody in Tyre could possibly help take care of this child, but this is not a play that holds up to too many such questions, so I'll probably stop asking them. Pericles, his wife, and now his daughter are all separated, stranded in their ways in different Mediterranean cities. Now we get a gap in time, as Gower invites us to imagine that several years pass in order for Marina to grow up into a beautiful young woman. Far more beautiful, in fact, than her foster sister, Philoten. Dionysa can't bear that this surrogate daughter so outshines her own flesh and blood, and so she hires a murderer to kill Marina. The murderer and the young woman go for a long walk on the beach at Dionysa's behest, but before the dreadful deed can be done, a gang of pirates kidnaps Marina and saves her. They sell her to a brothel in Mytilene, which is the last new city we hear of in this story. Marina is an amazingly virtuous young lady. 
she barely realises that she's living in a brothel, in stark contrast to the rancid way her new colleagues discuss their trade. She manages to talk just about everyone out of any sexual impropriety. Even when the governor comes for a visit, she manages to talk him out of what he wanted in such a way that he falls in love with her. And his name is Lysimachus. The brothel staff are already desperate and give us the remarkably cruel image of her virginity being like a glass that just needs to be broken. Eventually, Marina convinces even them that the whole city would be better off if she taught lessons, and so she becomes a teacher and sets up a little learning community. It's a remarkable storyline for this perfect child of Tysa and Pericles. Meanwhile, her father has no idea that she's living in such constant danger of being raped or murdered, and comes back to Tarsus to collect her, where he thinks she should be. There, Cleon and Dionysa wickedly tell him that his daughter's dead. With no hope left, Pericles retreats into his own despair, and, this being a romance after all, his boat eventually shows up at Mytilene. Nobody can get through to the thoroughly depressed Pericles. He is sullen, broken, and wants to be left alone. The governor has had no luck trying to entertain this foreign prince, but ah, he thinks, perhaps he has a solution. He suggests that maybe that startling girl might be able to lift the poor king's spirits. And so an interview is arranged between Pericles and Marina. This is the only bit of the play that hasn't been strung out by Gower. We get no dumb show to announce this, and so we are not quite prepared for the scene between father and daughter. Pericles is the first of Shakespeare's so-called romances, and this one sets quite a high bar. The play appears after the sequence of major tragedies that includes Macbeth, King Lear and Antony and Cleopatra. Barely a glimmer of hope to be found in any of those three plays, ambition and death, madness and death, passion and death. But then Pericles appears, and rather than death, we get this beautiful scene between two battered souls who have been surviving only in the hope of seeing each other again. They are both cautious, both nervous of any further pain. And then the light shines through the cracks, and we have this lovely scene of each realising that they have been restored. Of course, there's another reunion that has to happen, and the goddess Diana appears in a dream and tells Pericles to visit her temple at Ephesus. Most of the cast therefore up sticks and makes one final journey from Mytilene to Ephesus. At the temple of Diana, we have a second scene of reunion, where the family is restored. Gower appears one more time as a kind of epilogue to fill in any outstanding gaps. In Antiochus and his daughter you have heard of monstrous lust the due and just reward. In Pericles his queen and daughter seen, although assailed with fortune fierce and keen, virtue preserved from fell destruction's blast, led on by heaven and crowned with joy at last. In Helicanus, may you well descry a figure of truth, of faith, of loyalty. In reverent ceremony, there well appears the worth that learned charity I wears. For wicked Cleon and his wife, when fame, had spread their cursed deed and honoured name of Pericles to rage the city turn, that him and his they in his palace burn. The gods for murder seemed so content to punish them, although not done but meant. So, on your patience evermore attending, new joy wait on you, 
here our play has ending. So the story is a little bit bonkers and it visits a wide variety of cities that Shakespeare's audiences might only have known from the various letters of St. Paul in the Bible. The source for this story is perhaps the tale of Apollonius, but all the suggestions seem to present a very garbled process of transmission through the ages, including a poem by Gower himself that Shakespeare remixed in his own inimitable way. There are echoes of a great many of Shakespeare's own plays, the setting in Ephesus recalls the Comedy of Errors, also set there because that city was so deeply associated with magic and wonders and miracles. There are hints of All's Well That Ends Well in Ceremon, a doctor whose art blurs the line between medicine and magic. And bear in mind that Gower tells us at the very beginning that this is a story that has been told for restoratives. The story itself is going to make us feel better. The seedy Vienna of Measure for Measure is outdone only by the grime of Mytilene, and this play's pander and bored are a good match for the smut of Pandarus in Troilus and Cressida. There's a hint of the winter's tale in the way that a woman is reunited with her family after a long absence in the cool, awed environment of a temple gallery. As in the other romances, we have fathers and daughters attempting to rebuild their relationship after a cataclysm. It's interesting that these stories of family, of next generations, of dynasties, only start to appear after Shakespeare has smashed his way through tragedy, and after Elizabeth herself is dead. With the coming of the reign of King James, it became less dangerous to talk about new generations, or daughters, or hope, or succession on stage. This is a play that is crammed full of story. Reading it on the page doesn't make for the most exciting experience because it is not a play that is overstuffed with amazing poetry. But, as I mentioned, it has a tremendous power on stage. Quite the most amazing version I ever saw was a South Korean production by a company called Yohengza, directed by Jung Ang Yang. A really clever trick was that it featured a brilliant young actor, Dash Yu, as the younger Pericles, who was then replaced by his own father, John Yu, one of the most significant Shakespeare actors of his generation in that country. The production was wild and hilarious, but again, that final act was deeply compelling. The play was also the first production I ever saw by my Japanese mentor, and as a result, it gets quite a big description in my book. Ninagawa made the play into a testament to the power of storytelling and fantasy, and how both can be a balm in troubled times. Given that it seems like it came out so soon after that period of plague during which Shakespeare wrote King Lear, as so many people have crowed about in the last several months, I think it's amazing that what followed was this sprawling, crazy story. After such a long time being locked up, quarantined, isolated, is it any wonder that his imagination led him to a story of travel across much of the world as he knew it, of different cultures, different cities, the worst excesses of human behaviour and transgression, and then a heart-stopping scene of reunion at the end? Who among us cannot understand the joy, the hope of being reunited with those we have missed, of being able to hug them again, of knowing that our patience has been rewarded? Shakespeare really knew what he was talking about, and after these lonely, desperate months, perhaps we too begin to make more sense of this sprawling, glorious play.
even as I write, I'm left wondering if it's only fair that we should cover the two noble kinsmen at another point. But perhaps I will leave that in your hands. If you'd like to read it and to see it show up in your podcast queue, by all means get in touch and let me know. As things stand, we have only one more text to go, and it is, of course, Twelfth Night. The title has precious little to do with the play, other than it was likely performed on this feast day, the 6th of January, traditionally the end of the Christmas celebrations, the twelfth day, or twelfth night, of Christmas. In a slight change to how the book club has run all along, the final episode will come out early, so that you can hear about Twelfth Night on Twelfth Night, if you so choose. In the meantime, I hope you've been following along with the little Christmas challenge on social media, an appropriate quotation from one of the plays for each of the 12 days of Christmas. I hope you'll take a look. They're waiting for you at Hamlet Podcast on Instagram or on Twitter. Thank you, as always, for tuning in, and I'll be back with the final book club episode very soon.